Life is full of personal wins. Whether it's cleaning your house, getting that dream car, or checking off your to-do list, winning at life is a great feeling. And with the State Farm Personal Price Plan, you can keep winning when you create an affordable price just for you by bundling home and auto. So give yourself a round of applause. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 368. Uh, this is a very exciting podcast for us, um, so I will not spend too much time up at the top talking about myself and stuff, which I'm really good at. But come see live shows, Nerdist.com slash calendar. Uh, go to the YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash Nerdist. Course of the Force, StarWars.com slash Course of the Force. Big Star Wars stuff coming up uh, down the pipeline for Nerdist, so check all that stuff out. I would like to uh, just take a brief period of time to thank Hulu Plus for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. I'm sure you've been on Hulu.com, but now you can get a free trial of exclusive content in your living room or in your mobile devices on Hulu Plus. You get total control. You can watch thousands of shows, whatever you want. Obviously, whenever you want, because you know when you know how the internet works. But uh, it's full, full uh, runs, full series runs of things. All right, full seasons, uh, full runs, current shows, classic shows. Um, if I'm sure you probably have a sense of how Hulu is because you're you listen to the show and you're a pretty savvy person. But you know, if you want to watch all of The Office, or or if you want to watch SNL or Modern Family, or Community or The Daily Show or The Colbert Report, Bob's Burgers, Hulu Plus will get you covered. Um, it is a subscription-based service that allows you, and, and by the way, $7.99 a month for almost the entirety of television. So uh, check it out it, right now if you go to HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist, all in lowercase. There's an extended free trial of Hulu Plus that is only available to you, the Nerdist Podcast listeners. So take control of your TV watching experience. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist for your extended free trial. And uh, thank you very much to Hulu Plus for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast. Which is Rick Moranis, which uh, you could probably imagine was a very big deal to us. I really wish I could remember... I apologize to you if you were the guy on Twitter that said, Hey, Rick Moranis has an album coming out. Uh, you should get him on the podcast. Because as soon as I saw that tweet, uh, we reached out to uh, Rick Moranis' uh, people and they, and they immediately said yes. And I was like, what? This is happening. Uh, and so we were, I was in New York. I, I was just there for like a day on my way to London. And I flew Jonah out to the podcast and was going to fly Matt out to New York, to, literally just to do this. Uh, but Matt was already on vacation 
with Kiki, and so uh, didn't think it would be reasonable. He didn't think it would be reasonable to leave his girlfriend in the middle of Disney World while he went and did a podcast in New York. Although, if you were going to leave someone somewhere, that'd probably be a pretty great place to leave them for a day. Uh, so anyway, it was Jonah and I in New York uh, in a recording studio. So what you're going to hear in this podcast is the first, like, I don't know, five or six minutes were on the Zoom because uh, the microphones that they were working with us in studio... They were constantly adjusting and adjusting and adjusting, and so it was a little distracting. So I took the audio from the beginning of the conversation, the first five or six minutes, from the Zoom, and then the rest of it is are, are the nice studio mics. So you'll hear like a little shift in the, the audio quality, and that's that's what that is, uh, just for a little backstory. See, now you don't have to ask me what happened on Twitter or in the comment threads. Now you know you have this wonderful backstory. Um, but uh, Rick Moranis was such a freaking delight to talk to, and, you know, again... Uh, comedy idol so uh, he has an album out by the way uh, he has a couple albums out which you should check out but the most recent one is called My Mother's Brisket and Other Love Songs uh, just some songs uh, Rick decided that he wanted to start recording music and his, has a music background and he's been recording these great albums and so now if you go to rickmoranis.com um, it's available for pre-order the album uh, actually My Mother's Brisket actually comes out June 18th but um, again you know tremendous this is a tr- tremendous honor to sit down with Rick and he could not have been more friendly and, and open and, and just lovely to talk to. So here you go. There's podcast number 368 with Rick Moranis. <laughs> I can't believe I get to do what I do sometimes. Now entering Nerdist.com <laughs> What's that? This is a backup recorder. Oh, okay. So just in case, what this state-of-the-art technology doesn't work? You know, I, I, I'm 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 too familiar with technology to trust it 100. percent Really? Yeah. So those those are directional mics on top that look like some sort of flange connection device. Yes. This yes. Those are this directional is, mics. And that's a digital recorder. This is a digital recorder. It records. Uh, it, it'll record like Dolby. I mean, it's 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 incredible. It looks fantastic. It's also got XLR inputs on. It's the got bottom. XLR inputs on the bottom and. Uh, that is amazing. And it also has the distinction of usually getting flagged at TSA because it looks like a taser. It, do- it, looks, yes. it looks dangerous, it yeah. definitely. So I always have to go, no, it's recording. And what's the capacity on it? Uh, well, it depends on whatever. It has a, an SD card slot, so just whatever the capacity oh, of your SD right, and, the, right. and whatever the... Um, um, whatever format you're recording in. So this is just recording at like a high uh, MP3, so this will record... Like, there's still 55 hours of, of space I on I can't here. stay that long. Okay. okay. <laughs> 51, we'll check in, see if you're feeling good, and then we'll do the last four. So where are you playing in London? At this place called the Leicester Square Theater, which I've never, um, I've never performed. I've never really performed in London before, so it'll, it's sort of a... It's kind of an experiment. See if it works. Is it all comedy? <laughs> he hopes. <laughs> but I think it'll be fun. It was supposed to be a vacation. My girlfriend and I are going to Scotland. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be in London, I should at least just do one show and see if anyone shows That's up. That's what I refrained from, from when, when, when we were in London on the honeymoon. Like, a friend of mine, a comic from London, was like, oh, I got you on some shows. And I was like, I should, no, no, this is, this is for me and her. That's your honeymoon. That's different. 
Yeah. Isn't this your first trip with Chloe outside of the country? It is, but we travel like fucking maniacs Seems all the like time. Seems like should be special, though, huh? <laughs> oh, here comes the guilt. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it. I know. There was an afternoon talk show in Toronto for years. <clears throat> by uh, It was called the Dini Petty Show. She was she had formerly been a traffic reporter, and we became a bit of a personality, and they gave her a talk show. And she was very affable and really good. It was a daytime talk show. And so I used to go up there. All I, my, my whole family's still up there, so I would go up there three, four times a year and take my kids. And I was about to go up for one of the holidays, whatever it was, and I happened to run into Andrea Martin on the street. And uh, she said, what's doing? I said, oh, you know, usual stuff. I'm going up to Toronto for three, four days with the kids to see the family. She said, you're doing the Dini Petty show. I said, no. <laughs> she said, you're crazy. They'll, play, they'll pay all the airline tickets. They'll put you in a hotel. They'll, they'll pick up the whole trip. And all you have to do is do the show. It's, it's nothing. They'll drive you out to CFTO. And, you, you know, it'll take an hour of your time and you'll be fine. So like an idiot, I called the Dini Petty Show. <laughs> and I got the three tickets paid for, and I got the whole thing paid for. And for the next week, I was dreading doing this show. And anyway, um, I get there, and I had to arrange that my kids were going to be covered that day, and this and this, and I, ugh, the whole thing was, I just regretted it from the instant I did it. I walk into the green room, and Yafet Kodo is there. <laughs> and, he, and he looks at me, and he goes, you up visiting the family? <laughs> Obviously, he was, too. This was the greatest racket going out there. <laughs> Was the show, was it okay? Did it turn out okay? Well, it was okay as those kinds of shows go. Yeah. But, um... Right in the middle of the interview, she said, we have a really big surprise for you. Which uh, I which, never a good which idea. Which isn't good, right? No, no. And she said, someone's in the audience, which is the next thing that isn't uh. very good. And it was this, how can I describe this uncle that I had? <laughs> oh, They found a family member? In well, he found them, oh. actually. He found them. And he had been an old frustrated performer. and I mean, a nice enough guy, but not, yeah. not without his demons. And uh, when they said that he was in the audience, I had this feeling that I've never, ever had since in my body of fear and, and dread. And at the same time, knowing this is going to be a fantastic story to tell. I hope we can get a videotape of this all at the same time. And it somehow got through it, and it was okay. But at that point, I said, that's it. That's the end. That's the death of per diem. Per diem just ended. That's it. Never doing this kind of thing again. Nothing's free. Because one is down and yeah. And I got to meet you. And who knew that he had family in Toronto? I think it's the more. Hello there. Settle down. Old radio guy, huh? Yeah, right. And weightlifter. Okay. Rick Moranis was attacked by a microphone in New York City today. All right. This is the 1930s it was, again. It was great physical comedy. I thought that microphone stand was alive. You move over a little bit that way. Sure. And then I can see you because this... Was my mic in the way? No, my mic is in no. the way. Okay, that's good. That would be great. Thanks, I'll, just, I'll sit up straight. No, don't do that. Don't hurt yourself on that chair. We, we can rotate chairs midway. That'd be That's fun. True. That'd be fun. A little Chinese fire drill style? I think uh, Jonah's, Jonah's been a sloucher for 30 years. Yeah, so. yeah. 
tall guys. It's, it's a tall good. guy thing. Is it a tall guy thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You try to hide. If you're self-conscious, if, like, you know, if you're around mostly shorter people, which I was in Hawaii, like, you know, you find yourself trying to make yourself smaller and kind of more... But I know that thing when you're around shorter people that you kind of slouch a little bit, especially for a picture. Yeah, yeah. It's because you're always the one that has to come, come down. You know, you come down, you do it yeah. with kids. I, I just have to take a picture with about five people and one of them, and rarely is anybody shorter than me. One of them was shorter than me, and so I just naturally kind of went down to the yeah. guy's level. Yeah. And when the picture came, when I saw the picture, it looks like the other guys are holding me up. Yeah. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging. Old man Moranis. <laughs> That's what it looked like. Yeah. Are we recording? All right, so yeah, we're record. I guess we're we're recording now. Uh, uh, Sounds like the first time you've ever done this. Are we uh, recording on the microphones? <laughs> or uh, you did radio for a long time, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I started radio, and I started as an operator, spinning uh, records and adding commercials and keeping the log and all that kind of stuff. And then they stuck me on the air eventually, and um, and I wound up working all different kinds of formats too. I and mean, the first radio job I had. It was a middle-of-the-road station, AM and FM. The FM station was a classical music station. And I was in high school, and it was a part-time job. And uh, they paid us $3 an hour, and there was an announcer in the booth on AM. And on FM, it was all announce, uh, it was all operating and voice tracks. And you ran the whole show. You know, you had a list of albums, and you went to the library, and you picked them. And then there was the program log. And uh, you ran the show. And the announcer in the booth, all he has, had to do was talk when you told him to talk. <laughs> and when I got to public radio, that was private radio, $3 an hour. When I got to public radio at the CBC, which was all unionized, and saw that there were five people doing the job of the one, of, of the one <laughs> operator. Somebody with a clipboard, somebody with a timer, somebody just sort of standing, overseeing the whole thing. I thought, wow, this is the place to be. But yeah, I worked at, at uh, uh, CHFI and CHFI-FM in Toronto, and then CHFI decided to take on the rock of Toronto chum and became a rock station. And all these American DJs and programmers came in, and it was, we were on fire. It was fantastic. And I was still an op, I was still an operator, and I didn't know it at the time, but if you came up with an idea and told the announcer what to say... That was called writing, because <laughs> we certainly weren't getting paid for it. And eventually, the program director said, you know, do you want to go on the air? And I said, sure. And, and he stuck me on the all-night show, and my voice kind of went up to here for the first few weeks. <laughs> and I did that for a while, and then um, they all, the, the program director, wound up getting headhunted to an American chain of stations, and DJ turnover is huge. And they so they switched up everything, and then I went out of radio for a while, and then just before, I'd already started doing some stand-up around Toronto, and I was just about to go to Los Angeles to give it a shot in Los Angeles, and I guess I needed to have a little more money in the bank or something, and I took an FM job. And this is 1976, where it was still called progressive rock. Right, right. <laughs> and it was before FM became what it is today, which is basically what AM used to be. Right. And... I was on that FM afternoon show for about nine or ten months. And, that, you know, it was a lot of fun. You know, a lot of interesting things happened during that period. I'll never forget this one thing that, that um, I tell this story all the time. At that time, the most requested song, it might still be, was Stairway to Heaven. 
And uh, it was a Saturday afternoon, and the song was, what, 10 minutes long or something like that. And on FM, you could play it, especially on a Saturday, you could play it. And it was very convenient for us because you could just kind of answer the phone. You could do whatever you want. Go wanted. to the bathroom. <laughs> go to the bathroom. There's only so many There's times you go so to the bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm playing Stairway to Heaven, and the request line rings. And I pick it up, and a guy says, yeah, can you play Stairway to Heaven? And I said, I'm playing it. And he said, yeah, I know. Can you play it again? <laughs> and I said, can I ask you a question? He says, sure. I said, you really like Stairway to Heaven. Yeah. Is Stairway to Heaven one of your favorite songs? Yeah. So let me just take a guess here. Do you own a copy of Stairway to Heaven? He said, yeah. I said, well, how come whenever you want to hear it, you don't put it on? And he says... Because I want to hear it on the radio. <laughs> and that sort of tells you everything you have to know about <laughs> what radio is and what being in the audience is and the experience of, of sharing things with people. They don't exist unless you share them with people. Yeah, yeah. there's something about... Uh, well, there's, there's also something about being able to control the radio station by requesting the song and then, oh, that's the song that, like, you know, like on a jukebox in a bar. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, he was responsible he for was, it He was on, responsible yeah, yeah. for that experience. He was trying to get some ownership over the experience. I'm the guy that requested it a second time. That was me. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that right. day? And I figured that the reason he, the real reason he didn't want to listen to it off his album at home was he was afraid of missing it on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> turn that off. Turn that off. It's on the radio. They're in the same place. Yeah, yeah I know. Every time I, he's about to put it on, he just looks at the I was like, I'm just going to check. Not to mention that particularly in 76, the the disparity between the quality of hearing it on radio versus the quality of just playing it on your own, you know, I would imagine quadraphonic sound system. Oh, hi, hi. I don't I don't remember that. I mean the 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 fidelity in the uh, in the the room we were in was certainly good and cars started to have really good FM radios and everything and FM I mean it was the beginning of album rock. Yeah. Which is interesting because now it's cycled back to record company guys who were explaining to me that it's back to what it was before now, where people aren't buying albums, they're buying singles for sure. 90, 99 cents. Yep. Did you, uh, did you have a radio personality, like an effective personality, or were you just yourself? Well, when I was on AM, it was a period of AM radio that was very tightly regulated and was deliberately non-personal. So they, they basically gave you these little bumpers and liners to say, and that was it. It was all tightly formatted. It was, it was all about the most music, that you were playing more music than the other station. Mm -hmm. So everything was really tight, and the only window that you had were the eight seconds before the song. So whenever Papa was a rolling story, remember the song Papa yeah, was a rolling A minute and 22 second intro. When that was on, guys would start giving like junior B hockey scores just to be able to, <laughs> just to be able to talk and fill it in, you know? And on FM, there was a little more room to talk. In fact, this bizarre thing happened in, in Canada right around that time where they said they, they felt they needed to distinguish between FM radio and AM radio. So they instituted something, and I think it was very short-lived, something called foreground programming, where they didn't just want you to say, here's Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. You had to categorically give some additional information of value and fill it in on a log. 
according to what designation it was. You had to say something about the band. You had to say something about heaven. You had to say something about stairways. <laughs> Just anything. Anything. <laughs> any kind of tangent. That qualified as yeah. foreground programming. And that's tough for DJs to come up with that stuff. And they didn't have writers or anything like that. So you heard all kinds of really weird stuff. Well, you still hear that if you listen to like Sirius XM and you listen to like the classic rocks, like classic vinyl, and you hear those older jocks... And they'll do that, or they'll like they'll try to make some pun off the title, and then hit the post of the song right before the lyrics come on. Yeah, right. Like everything is really regimented, and you can feel that era if you listen to that. Right. Well, that's what they you live for is to hit that post, yeah. and, and to hit the vocal. And you know, in terms of the inanity, where where the 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 mind will take you when you're filling a minute and twenty two seconds, that's where Jerry Todd came out of that that whole SCTV character yeah. that that I did because I worked with those guys and I was across the glass from guys that had to fill you know if it was five minutes before the news, hey Jerry, it's five minutes before the news. And I don't know, this record's only three and a half minutes long. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a beautiful weekend. Can't, can't wait to get up there. I think this is the weekend I'm going to take the screens off. And maybe, uh, who knows, wash the windows. I'm not sure what I'll use this year to wash the windows. They say that vinegar and water is just as effective as uh, some of the other household products. And you're just, and I was sitting there, and my job was to go, this is really interesting. This is really. <laughs> so did you? So was was the leap? So you're doing some stand up while you were doing radio. Did you go straight from radio to SCTV? Because you were the, if I remember correctly, you were the one non Second City person. Like there was a Second City group, right? Yeah. Well, there, there was a theater company. The the, well, I mean, I know, I know, I know Second City. But I mean, were there you was, in it or were you? No, no. I, I was the one guy that wasn't in the theater company. Yeah. And uh, the show, the TV show started, I think, in about 1978. And it was syndicated. It was on the Global Television Network in Canada, uh, which was one of the smaller. There were three networks at the time. I think it was a smaller network. And it was syndicated in an, a, a few markets in the States. And I think what happened was a year or two prior to that, um, when Lorne Michaels started SNL, he came, he went to Chicago and Toronto and he took people from both theater companies. So uh, Gilda came from Toronto and Danny Aykroyd came from Toronto. And the people that were left behind started this other show with Harold Ramis from Chicago and Joe Flaherty from, yep. from yeah. Chicago. And they started this television show, 78 or so. At that point, I had left radio, had tried stand-up in L.A. I didn't have immigration. I didn't have um, an agent. I didn't have anything. And I did really well quickly because I had done stand-up in Toronto. And um, the problem was that the comedians hadn't gone on strike yet. You couldn't get paid. I remember asking Mitzi Shore if I could get bus fare or something to go from the comedy <laughs> store in Westwood. She asked me to, to play Westwood and then host on the strip. And I said, can, can you pay for the bus to get there? She's, we don't pay. <laughs> and I don't know if that's changed. No, it hasn't. And I just thought, I can't, you know, I can't do this. So I went back to Toronto and fortunately never stopped working after that. And I bumped into a guy when I got back. I got a call from a guy named Kenny Finkelman who I think still, well, he's still up there. He dabbled with doing something in New York, and he oh, he wound up doing a couple of pictures in Los Angeles. He wrote Airplane, he wrote Grease 2, and he wrote and directed 
uh, Airplane 2, and then he made a picture called Head Office, which he shot in Toronto. And I can't remember what else he did, but he stayed in Toronto and made fantastic television shows up there for the CBC for the last several years. And he called me up when I got back. He had sold a radio series to the CBC, and we did a few of those, a few cycles of those. I think they were six each, and we did several cycles. And then we went on television and did a two-man thing. So I was kicking around making short films, still doing a little stand-up, working with Kenny. And in the third year of Second City... Everybody left, more or less. Catherine left the show. Candy left the show to uh, to do his own series on yep. CTV. Um, Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin moved to Los Angeles and just worked part-time on the show, and they needed people. And Dave Thomas approached me. I had met him. I can't remember where now. I had met him, and he was aware of, of uh, the work I was doing, and he asked me to join the show. And Joe Flaherty... I don't know that Joe was ever that comfortable with somebody coming on the show that had not come up through the theater. And Tony Rosato also came into the show, and so did Robin Duke, and they had come up from the theater. But everybody else was either gone or working part-time. And the show that year went off of global, global television, and on to the CBC. And the CBC was a, because it was a public network, it was a 26-minute half hour with four minutes of commercials, and the syndicated show in the States remained a 24-minute show with six minutes of commercials. Can you follow this math, John? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was based on those extra two minutes that the producer came into us and said, the CBC would like the extra two minutes to be Canadian. And that's how the McKenzie brothers started. Was to They, they thought that that two minutes should be Canadian. You, and, and it was Canadian filler, basically. And I went ballistic because everything that we were doing was Canadian. And right. I had done a lot of Canadian satire, Canadian content satire before that. And so it was a natural to just, you know, try that thing. It's almost that. weirdly racist. Can you be a little more Canadian? Exactly. Like, well, that, so it was reactionary then. Yeah. Well, that's why I said, well, yeah. what, what do we have to do? Do we have to sit in front of a map and fry back bacon <laughs> and he said sure that'll that'll be fine and that's what we did and I, you know to this day i don't know who gets the last laugh because i thought that we were making a comment on canadian content but look what happened it wound up succeeding and becoming exactly what they had wanted in the first place but isn't that so funny like especially when you're you know i guess this happens in comedy and it's i think i think Chappelle had some of these some of this too where you're you you think you're satirizing something so much, and then all of a sudden, the audience that you're kind of making fun of is like, "That's fucking that, great." Right. That's like, your audience, exactly. Yeah. Well, no, I was trying to. Ah, fine. Exactly. And when we we did an album, and the the day of the of the record signing, they had to close the highway. They had to close. They did a parade from a shopping mall to downtown Toronto. They had to shut down the highway. We had our little van from the movie, and people had enormous floats. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was wild up there for a brief time. I mean, I really felt like I was a beetle for a while up there. It was wild. And then you had Getty Lee on the... Did you guys went well, to... Well, what, what happened was we... Uh, I got a call from this kid I went to Hebrew school with named Perry Goldberg, who um, who became an, a, an A&R guy at Anthem Records, which was uh, Rush's label. And he said, uh, Ricky, it's Perry. Remember me? And I said, sure. He says, you know, you guys should do an album. I said, Perry, I have an album. We were in Edmonton at the time doing the television show. He said, you know, everyone just wants a picture of you guys. Put a picture on the front of an album and do anything. So I went to Mark Giacomelli, who was doing all the post-production on the show, and I said, what do you think about doing an album? And he said, you guys should do it. And 
from radio, I knew that if you want to sell an album, you got to have a couple of pieces of music. You got to have a single, and you have to have a backup song for after the single wears out its welcome. So I designed this little two and a half minute up tempo pop single deliberately for airplay, and we did this Christmas song yep. as follow up, and the. the um, and somehow one, I, I don't, I guess because we were on Anthem and somebody asked or whatever, Getty came in and, and I hadn't seen him in 20, however many years, he came in and he sang the chorus on it. He couldn't have been nicer. <laughs> and to this day, to this day, because I've seen him a couple of times in the last few years, he always says the same thing. He says, that's the only number one record I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy to me. That's really? wild. Yeah. I mean, well, they've, they've sold, what, 30 billion records all sure, over the yeah. world. But that album sat, the single sat at number one, and the album sat at number one in Canada for about two months or something. Something like that, pardon me. Wow. Well, did, you were about to ask a question before. Um, oh, yeah. When when the Bob and Duck stuff was blowing up, and you know, you were, you're not that guy at all. But yes, like... I am. This is fake. <laughs> yeah. This is the fake this guy? Is the this is the fake guy. Yeah. That's the real guy. But just Sorry. like, uh, were the fans, like if you were out and about, would the fans like want you to be that guy? Say you were at a bar and they're like, oh, let me buy you a beer, be that be that type of guy. Jonah, that... I don't go to bars. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> when you're at a wine cellar. Well, you know, the fans want you to be on and whatever is the thing that they're recognizing you for they kind of want you to be that guy yeah. you know at some point or another but it's the same guy's requesting the song he wants to control the experience like do that thing i want to puppet you for a second yeah and whether or not they come out and say be the guy they do it and that was the thing about those characters is that everybody was that character like my sister called me the following halloween or something and she said Every time the doorbell rings, it's Bob and Doug McKenzie. <laughs> but it was the easiest costume because everybody in Canada <laughs> has a parka and a toque <laughs> and, a, and a bottle of beer. <laughs> and that was the thing. That's why the parade was so big. It was just so easy. Everybody could be that guy. So when we ran into people, they, they would talk like that. Yes, yeah. yes, they would. Well, so, so SCTV was on for about four years before it hit the States, right? Uh, I think it was, well, it was syndicated in the States right away right in seventy. And then um, two years later, it went to CBC, and I think this—I think the syndicated market stayed about the same. It was on at twelve thirty. At I don't know what what time it was on, but um, it was based on the success of the third season that um, that NBC picked it up. Oh, I gotcha. Think. Okay. And then it went on to twelve thirty at night on NBC Network. Right. And that was, I think, the second year that I was there. And then I, I think I left after the second. Dave and I left after my second year there. And then it, it continued with uh, on Cinemax, I think, for a while. I, I lost track of what happened. Because I had heard, I don't remember who was talking about it. Maybe it was an interview with Martin Short or someone. But, but basically saying, like, you know, you're, uh, you're shooting the show in Edmonton. Uh, and it just feels like, oh, we're all just doing this thing together. And I don't know if anyone's watching it. And then you realize... When you go into the city, like, oh shit, this is a thing. This like people are actually watching the show, and but when you're doing it, it just felt so insulated at the time. Well, precisely. I mean, the the reason it was in Edmonton um, the year that I joined it was I think it was close to being finished financially, and this this uh, doctor, this physician who had dabbled in real estate and done very well, and bought ITV studios, had had used his money to get into broadcasting, said. 
I'll finance the show if you shoot it in this studio. And this studio, up until that point, had done news and two chairs on a riser talk shows and maybe a cooking show. They had never done anything else like the scale of this thing. And when we wrote the show in Toronto and we went out there to shoot the show, and I mean, I distinctly remember the point at which we we found out that people were watching and digging it because, well, obviously there was no YouTube or anything like right. that. There was no feedback. We kind of had a sense we were selling a lot of VCRs because nobody could stay up late enough to watch the show. <laughs> but I remember, I remember being in a hotel room with everybody, with the whole cast, and Eugene, of course, was right up against the TV. So he could just, <laughs> not because his vision was bad, he just wanted an undisturbed. <laughs> and I'll never forget him turning around after the first segment or something and just sort of looking at us and going, this is pretty good. I mean, <laughs> and, and we had kind of hit a stride, but we had no idea anybody was watching and 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 really when you're writing a show like that you're only trying to make each other laugh and and that's the big difference between a show like that and SNL where SNL where you you got a couple of days to write the show you got limited space to do your sketches because you got to move things around so quickly and you have to write and and block for live laughs yeah and that's going to dictate how you write and how you perform and that's just a different animal we could block like it was a movie, and we could write just for ourselves, which is basically what we did. And so at the table readings, if everybody liked it, it got made. And if people went, what? Forget it. It was gone. And then when, when we went to 90 minutes and the demand was so high for material, I think it was Dave that instituted or talked everybody into instituting, two minutes and under, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of weird things happened in under two minutes. Well, that was the thing. I, I think, you know, one of the things that was so important to me about the my comedy nerd development was watching SCTV is that it was way more out there than SNL. And... SNL, there was a sense, you know, like a, the way it is in SNL, there's always a couple performers that pop, and then other people appear in sketches here and there, but but SCTV really felt like an ensemble. Like, it really, like, everyone was strong in there. And but, it, but again, on SNL, you have to pop to pop on, on you know, because you've got you to connect with the audience. It's a different medium. You have to be hot, whereas SCTV is... is it's like film. You can be as cool. I mean, look at the difference between the kinds of performers that Catherine and Andrea were, and they were both incredibly effective. Catherine is an is an understated, subtle performer, and Andrea is much more theatrical. And yet, they both did characters that that worked on that show. It's just they're different animals. SNL is a very, very tough show to do. I'm not saying that SCTV wasn't a tough show to do at a certain level of quality, but you're forgiven a lot more because you do not have to make an audience laugh. Right. Thankfully, I mean, it, you can do things that you can't do in front of a live audience because you're worried that they won't get it. We didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. Like uh, Circus Lupus, the Circus of Wolves. Like, I can't. That was such a that just felt like, what the fuck just happened? And I got to watch that again. What was your favorite sketch? Um, on Second City? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, they're all my children. There, you can't, <laughs> no, pick, a, you I, can't I, pick a baby. I, no, I just remember, you know, you, you remember different things, you know, and, and often what I remember is, you know, how hard I was laughing at certain things. And there was a day of shooting, 
Um, I, do you remember the pig characters that 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 I did a character called Carl Carl's Cuts that looked like a pig? Oh yeah 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 yeah. Okay, well the story on Carl's Cuts was this. I had written this under two minutes, two minutes and under <laughs> this thing about head cheese because we were in we were in Edmonton and I think I went shopping and there's a big Ukrainian population there and I went to buy some kielbasa in a store or something and there was like all this head cheese. I'm like well, head cheese. So I started writing this thing about head cheese. We needed material. And it was a thing like a, a wine and head cheese party, head cheesies. I was just riffing on cheese and turning it into head cheese. And I was scheduled to shoot it at 7 a.m. And there was a 15-minute or half-hour slot to shoot it. No time at all. And it was 30 below zero in, in Edmonton at all times. And Beverly Sheckman, who who was the George Martin, who was the fifth Beatle of, of SCTV. She ran the makeup room. Not to take anything away from Judy Cooper Seeley, who did the hair, or Jewel Hallmeyer, who did the costumes, or Christine Hart, who helped Bev. But Bev was sort of the mother hen of the makeup room, which was the kitchen of, of the show. What was created in that makeup room was exceptional. That's where Bob Hope was created. I mean, it obviously came from Dave, but she enabled realizations of characters and her team that that her work was just incredible. Just incredible. And I it was Beverly lived a, a couple of buildings away from me in Edmonton and I I told her I'd pick her up in the morning cuz it was so cold, you know, this older woman she shouldn't be trying to start a car at 4 30 in the morning and you know we were supposed to get in there at at uh 6 30 to do you know basic makeup just basic makeup and i had ordered a, a flat like a, a you know an in one camera in front of me a flat of a butcher shop and just a white smock and i couldn't sleep i was tossing and turning i didn't feel like i had enough and in the middle of the night i, I said i got it I have to look like a pig. So <laughs> I pick up Beverly at uh, 6.30 in the morning, and I say, hey, Bev, can you make me look like a pig? And she says, if I can find a picture of a pig, I don't think there's any stores open where we could buy a pig's head or get any pictures of pigs. So we got down to the studio. She went upstairs, somehow found an encyclopedia or something, came downstairs with pictures of pigs, taped them on my chest, and I was on the set at 9 o'clock. It was a two-hour makeup job, and somehow we were allowed to do that type of thing because <laughs> nobody was minding the store, and that was another thing that wouldn't happen on most television shows. Sure. That was another little part of the alchemy and part of the whole coincidence of that show was that at the same time that you had all these performers that had all these ideas and this makeup room doing and wardrobe room doing incredible resourceful things in a city like Edmonton they shouldn't be able to do <laughs> and and a studio who had never done stuff like this before, a, a television station, but was rising to the occasion every single time. For example, let me digress. When they got handed the Godfather parody, the, uh, this, this studio, what did they do? They didn't figure out a way to shoot it on the cheap. They went and rented the Godfather and recreated it. And it was incredible. The paint shop was open 24 hours a day. They wouldn't stop working to get things right. Anyway... Somehow I was able to kill two hours in makeup without it bothering anybody. And I came in and I shot the thing and Dave walked in and lost it. He couldn't believe <laughs> that I looked like a pig. And he said, I got to do this. I got to do this with you. So we wrote another one. where, 
and this is often how characters developed on Second City. You know, you saw something great and you wanted in on it. I mean, I, you know, I had to get on the Maudlin show, so sure. I came up with Skip Bittman, Bobby Bittman's brother. <laughs> you know, and I had to get in on the on the on the Schmengi, so I came up with Linsk Minyak, the guy on, that was on the road. And everybody was game. You want to try something? Come on in, try it. Had anybody said, "Hey, the McKenzie brothers should have a sister or a third brother," there would have been more McKenzie sisters and brothers, but nobody did. Anyway. There was a day of shooting. Dave wanted to write a sketch with the pigs, which was a parody of Deliverance, for the sole purpose of being able to twist the line, get down on all fours and squeal like a pig, into get down on all fours and squeal like a man. That was the reason that the sketch was written. And Dave looked so funny in that pig makeup that I had... I think the hardest time I've ever had in my life getting through a day of shooting. I just couldn't stop laughing the entire day. And so when you ask me what my favorite sketch was, I go to, you know, the, the days that I laughed the hardest. The pig sketch. The pig sketch, because I couldn't stop laughing. I don't remember where I was. Maybe I was, maybe I was going down a YouTube hole where, where you're just clicking in related videos and related videos. And, uh, and I watched, this was really just like a month ago, I watched the Ride Like the Wind uh, sketch. Again. Yeah, that thing has caught on like crazy. I it's mean, still... every musician I've ever met, you know, just always, always <laughs> mentions that. Yeah, that was, um, well, you know, those were the kinds of things you did, you know, like McDonald. That was done out of reverence. I loved and still love McDonald. Yeah. And um, I don't know, he was just on one or two or three or four too many. just pop up in the background. Yeah, I was just on a few too many things and so ubiquitous and such a specific voice, like an unmistakable voice. And I just... He doesn't blend into the background. No, I mean, he's, you know, and just such a unique and a great performer. So, I don't know, I was doing those Jerry Todd shows and it seemed like a natural and... And, and that was another thing about that show. Music clearances kind of weren't... Nobody paid any attention to music clearances at the time. We could do whatever we wanted. So, you know. You could just hop in and... You didn't have to submit anything? Well, that, it, that wouldn't have been up to us anyway. But oh, sure. whoever it, it would sure, have been sure. up to, I yeah. think, was, you know, buying kielbasa somewhere. In a... so, uh, so SCTV was about... You pretty you made the jump to movies pretty fast because it was... Strange Brew was like 83, right? Yeah, Dave and I got asked to do a, a Mackenzie Brothers movie, I guess largely because of the Blues Brothers having gotten a movie. Yeah. So it made sense to take characters that were successful on television. Only we didn't have a fragment of the, the budget that they did. And so we took the opportunity. We made the, we made the movie. At the same time, Joel Silver, the producer Joel Silver, had taken a real liking to SCTV, as had many people by that point. And they, he and um, Walter Hill had just made uh, 48 Hours, mm -hmm. and they had used Eddie Murphy to improvise his way and do whatever he could on 48 Hours. And Joel was trying to get something going with SCTV. He flew up to Edmonton, he met everybody, and he was really trying hard to get something going. Couldn't really get anything going. Um, hired a couple of us to to write screenplays, and he came to me with what was what was the next picture that Walter and he were doing after Forty Eight Hours, which was this movie called Streets of Fire, mm -hmm. which um, he said to me, "I want you to do in that what Eddie did in in uh, Forty Eight Hours. Just have fun, improvise, whatever." And that's not how it turned out. It wound, <laughs> it wound up being more of a dramatic part yeah. for reasons that aren't worth going into. And it, it wasn't a particularly satisfying experience for me. And um, 
but it was the first picture that I did in Los Angeles. And, um, you know, it taught me a little bit about what that world was like. While I was doing that, Dave was pretty much finishing Strange Brew. And when Strange Brew came out, it did moderate success because it was improperly released. It was released in a, in, on a wide platform. And so in markets like Fort Lauderdale, where they knew the album and they knew the characters and everything, it went through the roof. And in Sarasota, where they'd never heard of the McKenzie brothers because sure. everyone was over 70. Um, sorry, Sarasota. I know, that, <laughs> I know that things have changed. Sarasota does not listen to podcasts. They're okay, all over so 70. See, that, to my point. So the, the per screen average, which was the thing that they looked at was rather, you know, average, was was mediocre, and that was the end of the McKenzie Brothers movie. But it, it wound up developing a cult following, and it yeah. was very successful in Canada and all the rest. And then and then Ghostbusters was 84. And then, and then I got a call from, uh, I can't remember who, that I think Candy was supposed to have been in Ghostbusters, and he wasn't able to make a deal that, that he was happy with, and they started auditioning. And I went in and, and met Ivan and auditioned and got the role. In an article I read, uh, John Candy wanted to play uh, that character as a German guy. And I don't. Were, I think is that I, you know. I don't know. I don't. I don't remember what was in the script. Yeah. Um, I I don't know. Don't yeah. know the answer to that. Was there? Was that? Uh, was that sort of a hey, let's all screw around and improvise and have fun, or was the script pretty, pretty locked? Um, I because I was obviously going to be doing something very different than Candy was planning on doing. I rewrote my scenes, um, you know, consulting Harold, just sort sure. of running things by. And and then on the set, it was very much Ivan Reitman's style. And I think that's why Harold was there, you know, performing and, and why he cast his movies with comedians as opposed to actors. His style was, all right, you know, get everybody in, let's block it, let's light it. And now, all right, guys, what can we do here to make this even better? And so it was as freewheeling as the limitations of the tech would allow. You know, you couldn't, you can't, you know, you can't stray too far from your mark. You can't throw off the lighting and the miking guys and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can never, I know you can never know when you're working on something, but was there any sense when you're shooting this of like, I, th- I think this is gonna. I think this is gonna do really well. Or was it like, oh, we're just making a thing, and maybe people will watch it? Well, I don't think you can know, and nor do I think you pay attention to those things. And I think it's a mistake if you think you're sure. you're onto something. But um, not that anyone would have thought with the, with that group of characters that it wasn't on some level going to work comedically. What I guess what we weren't prepared for was the extent to which the market was going to. So absorbed the 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 supernatural the the because what was happening in movies in those days there was a lot of and this was partly Close Encounters time and Star Wars time there was a lot of sci-fi stuff that was that was permeating straight and comedic movies at that time so it kind of touched a chord of being funny and Billy was playing such a hipster such a great character and I don't know I think it just worked on a lot of levels and. It was so great for kids because everything was kid-friendly in those days. In fact, that's the thing I hear most from people today that stop me on the street. They say, how come they don't make movies like they did in your day? And what they mean is that you can't, you know, a lot of these movies are are kind of off-color for young kids. And Ghostbusters really wasn't. 
And so you, you could come out with the toys right away. It became, it was a big cartoon and it worked for, as, a, as family entertainment. Sure, well, and, but also, because I, I mean, I, I think I saw that movie like six times in the theater when it came out and then all the specials that dissected it afterwards and you realize like, Oh, the writing was great. The directing was great. The performance was great. The special effects were like there. I remember seeing spe- I remember seeing television specials just about the effects and how they did these practical effects. And then Elmer Bernstein and the music. Like it really was one of those m- kind of magical. Like oh, everyone was on top of their game at the same time. And this is this is what happens when 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 you get that. Yeah, it was one of those things where and again because uh, all that sci-fi stuff was exploding in Hollywood that all these effects guys were starting to do really good work. There wasn't anything you could concoct that an effects guy wouldn't say, oh, yeah, we can do that, we can do that. It was just a question of how much money you had. And Columbia stepped up. They had enough money to do what Ivan wanted to do. Yeah, Marshmallow Man, sure, no problem, Marshmallow Man. <laughs> Build the miniatures, do this, do whatever you have to do. Now it would be completely done differently again. I mean, a year later, I shot Little Shop of Horrors, with a physical plant. Yes. That wouldn't be done today like that. The whole thing would be... And it wouldn't look as good today. I don't know. It wouldn't. It would not look as good today. Like, Audrey 2 looked... I mean, that's part of the fun of the movie is that it looked like it was in the room. That's what kind of made it dangerous. Well, listen to this. The very last Audrey, which is only in a few scenes right at the end, is on um, a scaled-down plant shop so they didn't have to build yet another Audrey, okay? (laughs) So the 14-foot plant will look to be a 16- or 18-foot plant. So it was a one more plant shop we built. There were operating that puppet because they were puppets. 55 puppeteers. Jeez. 55 geez. puppeteers. On the, on the Feed Me, on the, on the four-foot plant, which, uh, which I do that song, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Feed Me, with, there were, I can't remember the number of puppeteers, but there were four cables to the upper lip and four cables to the bottom lip. And all of the scenes of the plant and everything of the plant with me in it are shot at 16 frames per second. So that... Because they could not form the words fast enough. Oh, wow. Oh. So it was all, the music, the lyrics were, harmon- the, the soundtrack was harmonized up so you could hear it properly. And the whole thing was shot slowly and we just moved slowly. And then they, when they ran it back, it was up to speed. But that would not be done like that. You would just do all the lip movements CGI now. Yeah. But it's just not as good. It's just still, you know, as 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 good as CGI has gotten when you see an effect in a movie that's CG, you never go, that looks really good, that looks good for CG. For yeah. CG, you always say it looks good well, for CG. Well, I think what's changed is in those days when you saw something that you couldn't believe, I can't believe that they're doing this, you knew how hard it You, you knew yeah. that they were it really... It was special. Th- there, were, there was something about it. Now, all right, wow, okay, so they blew that up or they did <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, that. Yeah. So the, the guy's face does that. That's, you know, remember... Remember when uh, in Indiana Jones when the faces the faces yes. melted? Yeah. 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 Now it would just be it would just be CG and it just doesn't feel as special. Yeah, I bring it up a lot, but there was in that uh, Nightmare on Elm Street remake, they just they did a scene that was done practically in the original, and they did it as a CGI effect in the remake. And it's just not as scary. And it's weird because it seems like it'd be even cheaper to do it as they did it in the original <laughs> today. It seems more expensive, and it doesn't look nearly as good. Well, my girlfriend's dad is a special effects guy, and he's done every big movie, and he's like, Ed's, you know, I used to get to build stuff, and now I just stand behind a bank of computers and tell people what to do. He's like, it's just not as not as fun for them anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, did you like 
But so you got really fa- I mean like people knew who you were, you know, from SCTV and from Strange Brew and then Ghostbusters was did did you did you like being super famous like that all of a sudden? Like or was it weird or did, did that even factor into the equation in your mind? Where, um, I mean, is it is it uncomfortable? Like, because when you're a performer, it's like, oh, I just want to do what I want to do, and I want to make people laugh. And then all of a sudden, it's like everywhere I go, people are pointing, and they know who I am. Like, is that part of it strange? Yeah, it's hard for it not to be strange when your your face is recognizable everywhere. And there's no denying that there were incredible perks that that were attached to it. You know, you walk into a crowded restaurant, you get a table. On the other hand, you know, it's an invasion of privacy, and there is that, what you're saying, the expectation that you're going to be on all the time. Um, And I guess it depends on the product you're associated with, because when they look at you, they either like you because they like what you're in, or I guess if if you're the guy that always plays the bad guys or, you know, the... The coke snorting, uh, you know, whatever, the, whatever. Yeah. Then um, maybe they look at you differently. I don't know. I I've always found people, for the most part, to be really nice. A couple of times, <clears throat> people were very invasive. You know, if I was out with my kids or something, and <clears throat> people just wouldn't pay attention to the fact that you could possibly, possibly not, you know, you could have a private life and not right. want to be taking pictures with them and doing all the things they want you to do but it you know comes with the territory yeah but it wasn't until um the the first honey i shrunk the kids movie where it went to that ultimate level where my face was just you know it was everywhere and everybody knew me after that yeah um did uh did you have a preference did you consider yourself oh i'm an actor and i'll do any kind of you know like i like drama and comedy or do you did you ever want to do more drama or I mean, I guess Parenthood, your character in Parenthood was was funny, but but it was it was a little straighter of a role. Do you prefer those roles? Uh, you know, I stopped so long ago, and I don't remember what I preferred or what I didn't prefer. I was always more comfortable in deeper character. I was a sketch player, and I never started out even as a performer. I started out as a writer, and some one of the producers we were working for was trying to cast something that we had written and he couldn't cast it and we and he said how come this isn't funny when these guys do it and and we said the partner i was working with at the time said well because they're not doing it like this and we did it for him again and he said well you guys do it and that's how i wound up on camera i didn't i didn't intend to do that and uh when it came time to start doing things where i was playing something closer to myself then i was pretty uncomfortable unless i had solid material or I was working with very solid people around me. Um, you know, I, I didn't study acting. I don't consider myself an actor. Um, it, it's, it's something that I just don't really understand. I can do it. Um, I don't know that I can do it well or, or worse or better than anybody else. I haven't done it for a long time, but I'm definitely more comfortable when I can, get a handle on what a character really is. Yeah, I, I think I had, uh, I, I was reading online somewhere that, I guess it was maybe 90, 96 or 97, and, you know, you had decided, like, well, I'm going to start, you know, focusing some more time on my kids, and then just sort of went, I think I don't really miss the acting thing anymore, and then that was it. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't, by then, um, I was, 
I wasn't getting the kinds of roles where they were asking me to do what they what they wanted me to do in Ghostbusters and Spaceballs and everything else, which was make it funny. I, they wanted me to hit the mark and say the line, basically. Right. And that was not exciting for me. And I also started to find filmmaking to be what it is, which is slow and methodical. And if you're the director, it's a fantastic thing because you're controlling the whole thing. But, you know, if you're an actor, you have to really love doing that, I guess. You have to like waiting two or three hours sure. to to do 15 seconds of acting. And I was I was starting to get bored with it. And, um, and I had a couple of experiences that really were not enjoyable. So when I finally did decide to take a break, it was very easy to realize that I wasn't missing that. Yeah. But I was missing the, um, the kind of collaborative work that I had done earlier on um, with with other writers and other writer performers. And, you know, I've rediscovered that now in music where I'm, I'm working with such fantastic people. And I also function better and enjoy smaller groups. You know, I, movies are so enormous, especially big movies. And there's so much at stake and there's so much money and there's so many worried people and there's so many executives all freaked out. And it really affects the experience for you. Whereas if it's a little home cooked little thing, you can just do what you want. And, and if you're lucky, it works. And if not, it doesn't hurt anybody. But you, when you also had like, especially in the eighties, just like such, such great groups of, you know, the Ivan Reitman group. And then, and then Mel Brooks, who has been on the podcast before and still just hearing him talk about comedy. It, it just like, Oh fuck. I really wish I'd been able to work with that guy at some point. Cause he just seems like, it's a fun, fertile environment of like, you know, let's all screw around and come up with ideas and have fun. Well, I have a, I have a friend that's a shrink who says that everything's contagious. Everything. Depression's contagious. Happiness is contagious. Mel proves. Mel is living proof that everything's contagious. Because you're just in that guy's presence and you will be funny. You, you just can't <laughs> help it. He just brings it out of you. He, his energy, his verve, his vitality. He's just an incredible force. Yeah. I remember when I saw when I first saw the trailer for Spaceballs, I was seeing The Untouchables, and then so The Untouchables, very serious, heavy movie, and then a yeah. the preview before that's where where Mel Brooks comes out and it says space, and he goes, yeah. "Where are the balls?" Right. right, and then like, "What is this?" And then I could not stop thinking about that during the entire uh, during all of The Untouchables. It was the most, the simplest, most perfect trailer for any movie. I remember that trailer. That was great. And that movie had that really daring beginning. That was Mel's. Um, the, the, the spaceship was that was the... so big <laughs> that it just wouldn't stop. Such a brazen... I, I yeah. love that. Love that thing. We break for nobody. <laughs> and then all the the different performers and, and Candy and Steve Martin and all those guys. It's a, Do you... When there are different uh, films coming up and you go, oh, the Steve's thinking about doing this, do you sort of collaborate before and go, are you going to do this? Should I do this? Should we do this together? Or the, are you, do they put you together? Or are you seeking these projects together? I, I don't know the way it works now because I've been out of it. But, you know, in those days, um, it, I guess it depended on the film and the, the, la the later experiences that I had that were lacking that that you're talking about is probably what made them less enjoyable. Yeah. Um, in the case of uh, the last picture I did with Steve, My Blue Heaven, we had the same agent, and Steve was going to do the movie, and the agent called me and said, you should do this with Steve. And I had already done a couple things with Steve and was friends with him and loved him. And 
absolutely. Why not? And and so, yes, spending that much time with him on camera, off camera, in between shots, uh, you know, just hanging out on location, whatever we were doing, we were always working on the stuff. And it was part of the enjoyment of the experience and the enjoyment of of life and each other. And, you know, it's for the audience, it's 90 minutes. For you, it's four months. And you, you want to you want to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I guess people don't really think about that. It's but I. When I was a kid, I always thought, oh, I want to be in movies. Oh, I want to be in movies. And then now it's kind of like what you said. We're like, I don't know if I want to just sit in a trailer for 10 hours. Not like anyone's offering, but I'm saying, I don't know if I would want to just sit in a trailer for 10 hours and what? I guess I'll go online for a while and then. Well, you know, I still, even though, you know, everyone assumes I say no to everything and I, and I pretty much do. Um, I still do get the odd inquiry and, you know, I would go back. I would do something if it was a great script. It was the right group of people. Uh, if it was something I had, hadn't done before and I wanted to try. Something came along a couple of years ago, or about 18 months ago, and it was a good script. The problem was it was a low-budget indie, first-time filmmaker, everything great except it was eight weeks in a motel in the desert. <laughs> and I said to the kid, I said, listen, I just can't spend eight weeks in a motel in the desert. I, you know, whatever you say to me, you're, you just, you got to find somebody that wants to do that. I'm not saying your script isn't great. I'm not saying you're not going to win an Oscar for this. I'm just saying I don't want to do that. Because <laughs> it's, it's sort of the... The reality, the human component where you still have to live through that time to just make that really short thing. Yeah. Now, you know, if he great. says Steve Martin's going to be in the next room, it's like, okay, you know, sure. <laughs> and you'll hang out with Steve. Are you really going? All right, so we'll go. <laughs> but do you think now that you're uh, making music so much, like, does a trip like that kind of lend itself to just writing a bunch of music when you're just sitting in your motel room? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I don't think that's a reason to do it. I think yeah. that's a reason. I, I think that whatever you're working on as a writer becomes the prism through which you see things, or at least that's been my experience. So if whatever I'm working on, because I'm trying to add things to it and I'm looking at it from the points of view of the characters or the story that are involved in that, then it doesn't matter if I'm shopping or cooking or picking up somebody at the airport or in a motel in the desert, <laughs> I'll be working on that at the same time if yeah. I have time for it, you know. Yeah. That's it's really interesting to hear you talk about how you like the the sort of fun, small, below the radar, intimate experience, and then you it sort of felt like oh, hey, I guess I can write songs. And then you start writing songs, and that must feel like what doing comedy was like a long time ago. Well, I was writing songs before I even started doing comedy. And um, when I was in college, I was doing a lot of writing. I kept journals, and I wrote really bad poetry and really bad songs. And I always thought that I was going to have a band. I would front a band somehow. Um and then I found my way into comedy and did as much music as I could on SCTV. When I did stand-up, it was always with my guitar, and I did lots of musical bits. And, um, and it was just a natural. I just kept writing songs through all of it. And just a few years ago, uh, it was about eight or however many years ago, I started doing that on a more regular basis. And it was around, uh, what I, th I told this story when the last album came out, that my daughter was in high school and she was dating this guy who was a mandolin player. And he would come over and play his mandolin and bring his buddies and, and they wanted to kind of play some bluegrass. 
and they played pretty well, and I was listening to the songs they were playing, and I introduced them to some of the country and some of the stuff that I had grown up listening to, and for a brief time, one of the radio stations I worked at was a country music radio station, so I had even been a country music DJ briefly, <laughs> and... Um, and they turned me on to a lot of alt country and some of the new stuff that I hadn't heard before. And instead of on any given day writing an op-ed, trying to write an op-ed piece for the New York Times or wherever I could get it published, I just started writing country songs. And I'd sing them to friends on the phone, and they say, you, you got to do something with these. And I said, what am I going to do with, with, with these? And eventually I had enough for an album, and I got talked into doing it. And... And it was a fantastic experience, and I was really happy with the way it all turned out. And um, I mean, there's something very gratifying about seeing something like that work because the scale is so small and it's so personal. And uh, and then I started writing. I continued to write in that genre, and I uh, my dream is to do a jazz album. So I've tried to write some jazz stuff. And all along, I had been writing in this other genre, which are in these. It's this category I describe in the liner notes on this new album. I say that um, in the in the years when I first started writing sketches and jokes and monologues with other Jewish writers, we would invariably get to the point where one of us would say, whoa, 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 stop. Too Jewish. Can't do it. <laughs> Too Jewish. And this is true of many writing rooms in Los Angeles where there are a lot of Jewish people. You just You, you just can't do the joke. It's too Jewish. So um, you mean that people wouldn't get it who are not Jewish? Well, as I said, to to Jew, yeah, people will not get it, or the star won't want to do it, or the network will think people won't want want to won't understand it, or the studio won't understand it. Now there are many shows where that kind of stuff leaks through. Seinfeld is full of all kinds of Jewish sure. stuff. Mel Brooks's stuff was full of that. Larry's stuff leaks through on Curb Your Enthusiasm. There's all kinds of stuff like that. But these songs are in that category, and they're right on the nose. And, you know, they're right out of uh, the, the person. It's, it's being released on uh, Warner Brothers out of Nashville, ironically, because I went down there to meet everybody, and I'm this Jewish guy from New York, and they've got this album, and they've never seen the likes of this. But the, the person that does the clearances and, and checks the spellings on everything, she said, well, I haven't dug out my Leo Rostin book in a long time. Leo Rostin wrote The Joys of Yiddish. And I dug mine out and read the foreword to it again. And it is, it is really worth reading. It is fantastic. Because it explains how so much of the Jewish language got into the English language, into the expressions that we use, the way that we talk. It's a fascinating 30 or 40 pages. You know what's really interesting is I never really thought about it before, but I don't know why there aren't more Jewish country singers, because it really is a genre of music that has a lot to do with suffering, which is, you know, like, it, like that feels like, why, why wouldn't there be more... It, maybe it's maybe just culturally the music just doesn't make sense. Well, it, it basically is all folk music. It's all folk music. Um, in the case of the Jewish music, it's Eastern European folk, sure. and in the case of American country music, it you know comes out of the South and the blues and all that kind of stuff. But folk music is that's what all music is. So it's kind of folk music in a minor key, and <laughs> and a lot of the melodies and you know many of them are derivative and and repetitive because I'm a, a great music writer. I am not. Um, they are reminiscent and come from 
what I heard as a child in synagogue and in the folk dances at the camps that I went to as a kid, and, and they're, they're there. The strains of them are there. I love the idea that that you start hanging out with your daughter's boyfriend when she's in high school to the point... Did it get to a point where she was like, Dad, can you please stop trying to be in my boyfriend's band? Can I please... Like, was there... <laughs> no, it was actually quite the opposite. Oh, good. I, I was worried that she was going to wind up with him, and I was going to have to give him material, because I thought his material was not going to take him too okay. far. Okay, oh, good. I got to okay, get this good. guy some songs. <laughs> if my daughter's going to be okay with this guy, I got to get him some songs. <laughs> and then they, they eventually break up, but you still want to hang out with the guy. You're like, oh, we're going to make... They did break up, and I'm still trying to sell him songs. <laughs> <laughs> A Gorophobic Cowboy was the was the album that what was that two thousand seven uh, six two thousand six two thousand seven five or six. Um, for anyone who hasn't listened to it, it's really fun. Like this, the subtlety we were talking about it before. Like the uh, there's a line in the first track where you say something about uh, you know I'm trying not to be tired and make sure that my boss so I don't get laid off. Like it's it's the it's, it's the twisting the expectation of fucking around with the rhyme schemes and yeah well that that's pretty simple stuff but what the what the song was about uh it actually one of my closest friends and the funniest man i have ever known i started working with him at the uh, cbc in 1977 we became close friends and he moved to la paul perloff and i don't do too much without running it by him because he's such a great editor and just so funny and i think he was the one that said on the phone in some conversation we were having something along the lines of um, of nine more gallons and I'll have I'll have a hat. I think it came from that, and I heard that as a song and developed it into a, into a song. So once that character of that song was this guy that was nine gallons short of a ten gallon hat, he was not going to be able to rhyme. <laughs> he was not going to be able to rhyme, and that led to fifty one more cards, and I'll be playing with a full deck and. You know, all the other... 17 more wheels. And, and I'll have a truck. truck. Yeah, 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 all of that stuff. <laughs> but then this, the, the latest album, is it uh, My Mother's Brisket? And Other Love Songs. And Other Love Songs is a totally different... Uh... Yeah, well, it, it started out... Um, I mean, I'd been writing these kinds of songs for a while, and ultimately I had a collection that was enough that it was worth considering producing it. And I thought initially it was going to be in the kind of the klezmer genre, which is a very up-tempo, very sort of dense uh, spectrum, uh, tambourine and horns and accordions and all that kind of stuff. And there are a couple on this that that kind of sound klezmer, but I wound up working with a, a producer named Gary Schreiner who took it in a more eclectic, more studio um, kind of sound that really, really enhanced a lot of the, the songs that were not written in the klezmer genre. Yeah. And so... For me, part of the humor in some of them is that they're they're sung so earnestly. For example, the song My Mother's Brisket is a love song to my mother's brisket. And it is so earnest that he, he put strings on it and it really worked. And you know, you wouldn't hear a string section playing in a in a klezmer band like that. You'd hear one violin playing klezmer violin, but you wouldn't hear a string section. Yeah. Have you ever thought about uh, have you ever talked to Steve about touring? No, no. I mean, I, I kind of lost track of everybody, and I don't, you know, I, I, I've dropped all those. I just haven't seen anybody or talked to anybody from that world. Isn't that but, weird how you could, because I, 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 I'm starting to see this now, where it's like, you know, you have a cluster of friends or just like an, an experience or a group that you hang out with, and you're like, man, 
we're gonna be friends forever. And then all of a sudden, it's like three years go by, and then you see someone, <laughs> and you're like, hey, let's have lunch. And then you never have lunch with them, and then seven years go by. And well, then... you know, when when the the foundational thing in a relationship drops out, it's tough to sustain the relationship. You know, people who are from a town and stay in the town and work in the town and sure. marry in the town, they stay friends with the town. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you work with somebody and then you stop working with them, it initially you think you, you can sustain the friendship, and, and in many cases you can. I mean, I have an example of something like that. I, I've been playing squash for since, well, I don't know, for 40 years or something like that. And squash is a very intimate game. It's the, it's it's like the closest thing to sex, without being sex. It's two sweaty bodies rubbing against <laughs> each other in a small room, and, uh, and and there's an endorphin rush at the end of it. I mean, it's just it's just a really really fast, incredible game. And you wind up in the warm up and cool down period of squash, inevitably sharing things with your partner and if you play with them over an extended period of time you get very very close to them and i've made some really close friends on the squash court and one of them is this fantastic guy and he went through a bad breakup and then he met a great woman and then he got married to her and then he started a business and i was like there through the whole thing <laughs> and then he tears his achilles and he's out of squash oh. and the first year it was what you were saying it was let's get together we got to have lunch and we have lunch and the second year, it was a Christmas card. And the third year, there was no third year. And now if I happen to bump into him, we just embrace. We, you know, we, we really love each other. But the squash is gone. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think this happens pretty much with everything. I, almost, I wonder sometimes where you go, oh, I'm really good friends with these people. And then you go, wait, am I just work friends with these people? Yeah. Well, also, you know, that's another thing about film sets is it's a... It's basically circus life, and you're on the road with a large group. You're on, you know, you're on location, and it's very intimate for a very short amount of time, and then it's over. Yeah, it's over. And then you, and then it's hard to capture that again. You know, it's it's hard for people who don't have anything else. Yeah. If it's over and you have a home, you have a life to go back to, then you know you you have a context to put it in. But if it's over and you don't have anything else, then you are potentially in a lot of trouble until the next circus <laughs> yeah. starts. And and so you must have felt when you when you when you pulled away and and pulled out of acting. I mean, you had a family. I mean, like you had something. So you you must have felt pretty okay at that time. Like yeah, I don't. Well, need life was you know life was complicated at that time for me. But I I did have um, really great support around me, and and I did continue to work. I did continue to write. And um, I was getting some voice work, and the McKenzie's were still thriving. We were doing commercials. And so it wasn't an overnight thing where it just all stopped. Um, but it was gradual. And I certainly was out of the airport and first class flying to L.A. and hotels and, and all of that stuff. I was out of the movie world yeah. and everything that, that came along with that. And so the, you know, the relationships, initially they were there, but then they fell by the wayside. I got busy with other things and other people. 
And 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 doing non-entertainment stuff. Well, I was still entertaining. I was entertaining at home <laughs> and entertaining my friends. And, you know, I think I was... I, somebody showed me a clip of, a, of Albert Brooks on a podcast where he's talking... Might have been with Adam Carolla or yeah, something like that. Yeah, Carolla's, yeah. And he was talking about the gratification that you can get. It doesn't matter the size of the audience. And the gratification he was get just get gratification he was getting as a comedian making somebody laugh on the phone, just a friend. And that's what I have had in my life with my close friends that I talk to on the phone on a regular basis who are hilarious. I mean, my kids grew up with knowing that when they heard a particular sound and when, or saw me doubled over with tears rolling down my face, they would just look at each other and go, Perlov, he's talking to Perlov. <laughs> they just knew right away. That's so funny. That's it. But, the, but the difference of like you and Albert Brooks versus just like the guy who's funny and is to his family... It's like, oh, but they're also like really huge comedy people at the same time, but you still have that need just to... Well, you know, one of the great misconceptions or or, uh, things that people don't know about comedy is that when you think of funny people, who do you think of? You think of people who have performed. You don't think of all those hilarious people sitting in the writing rooms of sitcoms and, you know, the people that you've never heard of. They are as funny, if not funnier than the performers. They just don't perform. Yeah. I mean, I remember uh, Brian Levant, when we were shooting Flintstones, he wanted to have one of those punch-up sessions on the script. It was one of those scripts that had about 18 writers. And he invited me in, and he had some of his old sitcom buddies come in for a night to punch up the script. And I sat in on this session, which was really interesting, because the first thing that happens is you order food. And then everybody's happy. And they get funny because they know they're getting a free meal. And he would put, put the script, the page up on a projector and say, we need a joke here. And the guy beside me kept coming up with the funniest lines. But I had to repeat them for the room. He was just so, his name was Lloyd Garver, I think. And, and he just kept saying things that were hilarious. And I would say, excuse me, Lloyd said this and this and this. He just wasn't a performer. He couldn't even perform in the room, yeah, let yeah. alone on a stage. Yeah, there, we know we know some writers like that where yeah, it's definitely. in general you would never know that they were comedy people if you just met them because they're super quiet. Well, that's Paul Perlov. He's the funniest guy I know, and he's he won't perform. I talked to him in performing once, yeah. and he was just it was horrible for him. He just couldn't <laughs> do it. Couldn't do it. So when you're when you're spending time with your family and you, or you're just having like you know human family experiences and there's good times and there's bad times and you just kind of like eh, this is more important than all the fake. The Hollywood stuff, or this is more important than trying to be funny to a large number of people. I really just, this is real and that's not real. Is that is that well? They're, bo- they're both real. It's just that um, I don't think there's anything more important than ra- than parenting. If you've decided to bring kids into the world, then I, I think you want to spend a little time focusing on that. Yeah. Um, I was lucky, being a good Canadian, that I, I, I had saved whatever money I had. And I also, being a good Canadian, I have a very modest lifestyle. And so I, I was able to pull away and just get by on doing commercials and voice work. And I was able to walk away from being enticed back into it just because I needed to exploit it. And even, even once I had said that I didn't want to travel anymore and sitcoms came to me that would have been based in New York, that would have meant you know, leaving the house at six in the morning or said, you know, I wanted to be at breakfast and I wanted to be at dinner. I just did. And I don't regret it. It was the best thing I did. But um, there was something else, which was, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. My kids were a blast. I mean, it was, I had the challenges that all parents have, but it, we had a lot of fun. 
And uh, that was another reason I didn't miss it. I was having as much, if not more fun. In fact, one of the last pictures I did was a, a kid's movie called Little Giants, which had other problems that made it a difficult experience for me. But it was full of kids, really nice kids. Some of them were football players. Some of them weren't. Some of them were doubles for the football players, whatever they were, really nice kids. And one day I thought, you know, I really like these kids, really nice kids, but these are the wrong kids. I got to go. I got to go to the right kids. How old are your kids now? Oh, they're all grown up. They're in their 20s now. Oh, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you still do you still hang out with them and have it like do you Well, they have lives now. I mean, you know, they they trickle into town now and then and and I see them and, you know, obviously we're very close, but they're they're adults. They're independent. Yeah. But I still don't want to go to the motel in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, I don't think I would want to do that either. Yeah. That is, a, that is a, I, that that really does. Yeah, boy, when you're when you're first starting out, you'll do anything, and you never question if it's a good idea or not. You're just like, yeah, I'll do it. I don't give a, I'll do it. No, you actually think it is a good idea, you know, because <laughs> it's work and it feels right and it's new and it's exciting and you're learning and everything. But yeah. you know, when you get to the point where I already know what that is, I already know exactly what it is. I know how I'm going to feel the day that I get into that room the first time. Yeah. And you kind of need to keep, I guess, as a creative person, you sort of keep, you need to keep being excited and surprised by things. If you have, if you can afford to do that, if you have the luxury of being able to do exactly what you want to do, then take it. Yeah. Well, uh, the album, this will, the album comes out May. No, the album comes out June the 18th. Oh, it doesn't come out till June 18th. Whatever okay. that means these days. Yeah. You know, when, when an album comes <laughs> an out, album it drops. You know, the big release day where everyone yeah. looks for the... Yeah, when it comes out in the stores that don't exist anymore. <laughs> it is an exciting day on the internet, though, on Tuesdays to just see what's out. When all of a sudden it becomes a part of the digital consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> that is... The... Well, I think on May the 21st, uh, well, this is going to run after that. Yeah. Uh, something like that. That's when they announce it or... I, I don't, people I, can you know, pre-order it. I don't understand it. I, I really don't understand how they function in a business that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. But it's perfect for me to be actually doing doing something in a business that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> so like when when a girlfriend cowboy came out, did you even think about at all like I wonder what people are going to think about this or did you just go why was it put it out there and people will figure it out? I didn't think at all about what anybody was going to think, you know, because I had vetted it in my own closed circle. Yeah. Um which I think is important. Um, the decision to write, I don't make that decision. I just write. The decision to publish, in this case to produce and publish, I checked it with, you know, people that I trust. And I was so happy with the experience of producing it. I was happy with the product that I initially just put it out as an internet release. And it got really good notices right away. And it got a Grammy nomination. And then after the fact... I, in retrospect, I made, I, I made a mistake that I wouldn't do again had I known, which was I went and I got a distribution deal. And, and all I was trying to do was trying to reach a wider audience because I felt that the market was telling me this wants a wider audience. Yep. And so I did that. And then I became both the artist and the label. And 
as the label, I had to demand of the artist things that the artist didn't want to do. And I was not enjoying that experience. And what happened this time was I was going to do the same thing. I was just going to do a small internet release. And I called up the attorney at Warner Brothers that I had done the distribution deal with on the last album, just to make sure that I was free and clear. I knew I was, but I just wanted to say, you know, I, I just want you to know I'm doing this. Uh, and the other album is... That deal is over and we're clear. He says, well, what are you doing? And I told him. Turns out he's a Jewish guy from New Jersey. And when I told him what I was doing, he said, you know, the business is really different now. You, you might want to reconsider and do this, you know, with a record company. And I said, I don't think this is that. This is, just, this is for my friends and family. This is like a Jewish, this is just Jewish songs. Like you don't have to be Jewish or, or the Alan Sherman records. He said, well, why don't you, you know, let me hear what you got and I'll, and I'll tell you what I think. And he came over and I played him. At that point, uh, some demo stuff and very early crude recordings of rhythm section stuff. I hadn't done any overdubs or any mixes or anything like that. And he finished listening and he said, you're crazy. There's a Jewish population in every city. You should get this out there. And I said, I don't know if you can make the kind of deal I want to make. And we were able to make a deal. And that's why it's coming out on Warner Brothers. So we'll see. I have no idea. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me what happened. <laughs> I, that, is the, that is such a great place to be, I think. as Because, you know, part of performing, or particularly stand-up, there's always that, oh, shit, I hope people like this. Oh, my God. You know, especially now because we're so connected with the Internet and you know right away if people like it or not. That just be, it's, it feels so freeing to be like, eh, I made a thing. Some people will like it. Other people won't. I don't care. But that's always the case. For every person that thinks a joke of yours is funny, there's 10 that won't. Sure. You know, you hope that people that are paying to see you in an audience and that are sitting in the audience at a club or a, or a stadium you're playing will all laugh. But that's not the case. So, you know, I'm putting this out. The people, my enablers, who have heard it, who who tell me that it is worthy of being put out, um, okay, if they're wrong, they're wrong. Um, if somebody likes it, great. If everybody hates it, fine. What what can I do about that? I've enjoyed every minute of it, and and that's all I care about. Ah, oh, that's such good. That that is a much better philosophy than the. It's good. But you can't you you can't please everybody, and it's crazy to try. It is. I do find it interesting that I think, you know, particularly now and, and something that I've tried to tell other people is like, it doesn't have to be zero or 100 percent like you, you can. Well, you want to put 100 percent of your, of your effort into it. But, but I just mean in terms of acceptance, it doesn't have to be everyone didn't like it. Like, well, you shouldn't want everyone to I like think it. If, yeah. I think if you aim for too general an audience, you're, you, it, you, it's just not going to be as good as you can do. Yeah. Agreed. That's what I think. And, you know, also, I think there's another element in there that's really important, which is everybody, the greatest writers in the world have editors. You, you should not work alone. You know, you can work alone, but you've got things have to be vetted. You need editors. You need another pair of eyes on it. You've got to test stuff out. That's great. Well, this has been... Uh... This has been fantastic, and thank you so much for thank you. coming and sitting with us. This is virgin territory for me. You this don't do is, a lot yeah. of interviews, do you? Well, it's also, I've never done a podcast before. This is your first podcast. And I didn't go to the Columbia School of Podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I remember going to a radio school, like we were shooting a sketch there or something in probably like the uh, early 2000s, and it was this radio school in Los Angeles, and they still had the knobs, just like the old... The and pots. The we po called them pots. And even at that point, because I worked in radio too, and even at that point, 
that was when the the sliding pods were moving over to digital where you didn't have to pull carts anymore but they were still teaching kids like yeah. this is the this is how radio works listen here's how infrequently i i'm in this world we did two days of uh, rhythm tracks on this my mother's brisket uh, album down at dubway studios downtown new york and at the end of the second day, we had gotten so much stuff. It had been an incredibly productive day, and I couldn't believe something was bothering me. Why is it? Why did it move so fast? And it hit me. I hadn't waited for rewind. <laughs> there was no rewinding. Do you remember the old days of rewind? How long it would be between takes? Rewinding, you know, and there would be a guy. There would be a tape op. Rewind it, Pete. Okay. And he'd rewind it and you'd be ready a minute later and then you'd screw up the beginning of the take. Rewind it again, Pete. And then you'd rewind. <laughs> the only time I've ever recorded with an actual tape uh, like that was uh, uh, it, it was such a jarring experience because every time you would screw up and you'd hear the tape stop, it would always, you'd hear it slow down for a second to, to a stop. So you would always, it would always just be like that disappointing error. Yeah, <laughs> you go. Oh, you I mess made up that in there. You have to I made that happen. Over, yeah. uh, Rick Moranis, at your website, rickmoranis.com. Are you on any of uh, social media at all? Are you on? Are you on Twitter or any? I'm anti-social media. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I think there's a few fake me's out there on the. But we terrorists. can officially say that you can cite this as a source that Rick Moranis is not on social media. So anyone claiming they are Rick Moranis is a damn liar. Well, the guys in Nashville said they were going to scrub and lock it all down. Whatever that means, <laughs> I, I have no idea what that means. I think they're. I think they're trying to shoot all the people that have the. Um, all the Twitter accounts. And, oh, yeah, you can't say shoot. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, take that back. <laughs> Rewind. Error. All right. So uh, rickmoranis.com, pre-order the album. Uh, well, by the time this goes up, you can pre-order it. So uh, thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Well, we don't want to keep you too long. but Well, really nice meeting you guys. It was yeah, wonderful. It was I, mean, nice I hope you're, you're happy with what you got. Oh, it was wonderful. And honestly, you know, I hope we didn't nerd out on you too much about all of the SCTV and no, comedy No, no, no. I mean, you know, there's some stories there that are... I, I hope it doesn't bore your audience. There's oh, some stories there that, that are so fun, much yeah. that are fun to talk about. They're going to love it. I mean, so it really, much. it really was a wonderful time, and the people were amazing. So it's, you know, it's sweet to think about it actually, because I, I do have great memories of it. But I've lost track of everybody. I mean, I just we still work with Dave, though, right? Haven't for years, for oh, really? three, four years now, or yeah. maybe a bit more. You know, but so many, you know, like so many people have, you know, I think just because of. So many performers are like, they'll do so many talk shows whenever someone wants to talk to them. But there's not a lot of stuff of you talking, just no, talking in the do, world. I don't do anything. And, you know, I don't normally like to hear myself talk. Um, and I don't like tell. I don't like doing television. I think this kind of, this kind of thing is so relaxed and you guys are so easy to be with. And television, which is like a movie in yeah, its own way. Yeah. Really intense, really intense, really intense. Eight minutes, it's over, and you've got to make that big audience laugh. Yeah. I, you know, it makes my blood pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't enjoy it at all. So if I don't have to do it. And also, you know, I, I, I don't think you should be out there unless you want to be out there or you have a reason to be out there. Yeah. And, you know. We'll see. Well, good luck with the album. Thank you. If there's thank you. anything thank else you. we can yeah, do, let us know. Yeah. What, I have no idea, but... <laughs> awesome. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito.
This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Hulu Plus. Don't forget to sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite hit shows right now. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist, all lowercase, for your extended free trial. Again, HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground, and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? You can listen to Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.